Peaceful Parenting by Stefan Molyneux, Part 3. Do we love our children? Love and violence are opposites. A man cannot justly claim to love a woman if he also beats her. A woman cannot claim to have great affection for her cat if she starves it. A bully who abuses his victim cannot claim to love that victim as well. What about love and exploitation? Can a boyfriend claim to love his girlfriend while surreptitiously running up massive bills on her credit cards? Enslaving others through debt is the opposite of love. It is time for a thought experiment. I want you to imagine a purple-skinned race of people. Society claims to love and value the purples, but what does that mean? Claims of affection are not proof of love. Abusers usually claim to love their victims. Stalkers terrify those they claim to treasure. Exploitive corporations often refer to employees as being part of a loyal company family. Cults regularly engage in love bombing, the practice of showering affection on lonely people in order to stimulate a bond to an exploitive gang. It is true that society claims to love and treasure the purples, but as sensible, rational individuals, we should compare society's ideals to the actual facts. How would we judge society's proclaimed love for the purples, if we found out the following. 1. It is illegal to hit anyone in society, except the purples. You can hit the purples without repercussion. In fact, those who hit the purples are generally praised for maintaining social order. 2. It is illegal to perform genital mutilation on anyone, except the purples. Carving up the genitalia of male purples is encouraged and praised. 3. It is both legal and encouraged to use the future earnings of even the unborn purples as collateral for government spending. 4. It is illegal to run up debt and force others to pay. Except the purples, it is both legal and praised to greedily dump about a million dollars worth of debt on the newborn purples who must submit to this enslavement and pay for this debt for the rest of their lives. 5. Purples are regularly sexually assaulted. It happens to about 1 in 3 females and about 1 in 5 males. Although this is technically illegal, prosecutions are exceedingly rare. 6. Bad behaviors which are absolutely unacceptable in general society are accepted and often praised when inflicted against the purples. If a waiter gets your order wrong, it is absolutely unacceptable to yell insults at him. However, if a purple does something wrong, it is good to raise your voice at him or her. 7. Those who verbally intimidate anonymous retail workers are scorned and insulted as Karens. Those who verbally intimidate the purples are praised as good and noble people. 8. 
in non-purple society, it is absolutely unacceptable and often illegal to physically punish or traumatize people who disappoint you or disagree with you or make mistakes. When dealing with purples, however, you are allowed to physically restrain them, hit them, scream at them, verbally abuse them, withhold necessary food, shake them, and so on. As long as there is no permanent obvious injury afterwards, you're fine. 9. You are never allowed to force others to live with you against their will. That is called kidnapping, a criminal action that is severely punished by decades in jail. Oh, but you can keep a purple in your house, or a couple of them for that matter, and they are legally barred from leaving, no matter how terrible the environment. If they try to escape, they will be dragged back and punished, usually violently. 10. You are not allowed to trap people in a room and inflict your ideology on them. That is either directly illegal or would be prosecuted as dangerous cultish aggression and unlawful confinement. However, purples are forced to sit in a room for over six hours a day for 12 years straight in an often violent environment and are relentlessly indoctrinated. 11. If you provide a service or a product, it would be unthinkable and illegal to involuntarily drug someone for not wanting your product. You are not allowed to inflict mind-altering drugs on people who fall asleep during your movie. Oh, except for the purples, you can totally drug them if they fail to pay attention. There are more examples, countless really, but let us move on. Surely these basic facts would arise in your mind when everyone in society constantly trumpeted how much they loved, treasured, respected, and valued the purples. If instead of the purples these were women, we would be outraged at such blatant, violent, and destructive sexism. If instead of the purples these were blacks or Indians or Hispanics or any other ethnic group, we would be outraged at such blatant, violent, and destructive racism. Racism. Yet, we don't even have a word for prejudice against children. That is not an accident. Childism is in part never defined, so it can never be discussed. Childism. What is childism? It is the universal, relentless, and often institutional prejudice against and hostility towards children. In most countries, parents are allowed to hit their children. The vast majority of parents do hit their children or deploy other forceful mechanisms to restrain them, such as using their size and strength to force them to stay in a sitting position or be forcefully confined to a single room. Parents deny their children necessary food, yell at them, call them names, scream abuse as well, dump them sobbing and crying into daycares, and ignore them at home too very often. Children are stuck at home and cannot leave. A society 
that truly loves its children would never, ever have a national debt or unfunded future liabilities such as health care and old age pensions that children will be endlessly forced to pay for. A society that truly loves its children would never force them into mandated schools where the interests and preferences of the children are utterly immaterial and where they are drugged for failing to pay attention while being relentlessly and pitilessly indoctrinated. Children are far safer and happier in two-parent households where the mother stays home to raise the children. A society devoted to the safety and happiness of its children would do everything in its power to promote the nuclear family, because that is the most reliable way to secure the safety and happiness of children. Society is the most safe and stable when children have secure bonds and attachments to their mothers. A society that cares about its children would never, in a million years, promote policies or perspectives that encouraged a mother to separate from her newborn child. Of course, if the mother dumps her baby in daycare in order to go to work, then her employer benefits, the government's benefit from her taxes, and the taxes of the daycare workers, but such a society is inevitably sowing the seeds of future chaos and violence by breaking the mother-child bond. A society which truly loves and cares for its children would place its children's needs and happiness at the center of almost every social and legal decision. Every time any question of importance came up, the central driving factor would be, is this best for our children? Should children be spanked? The answer is surprisingly simple, as we will talk about later in this book. Spanking is disastrous for children. Should we yell at children? The answer is also surprisingly simple. Verbal abuse and intimidation is disastrous for children. Should we put children in government schools? Again, the answer is surprisingly simple. Children do very badly in government schools. Should we fund society's current greed by enslaving our children to future debt? To ask this question is to answer it. To ask yourself whether society truly loves and treasures its children, we must simply ask the following. What sacrifices does society currently make to ensure the best outcomes for its children? If you were to say to the voting public that they will have to forego some government benefits in order to pay off the national debt and free the children that everyone endlessly claims to love and treasure, would such a politician ever be <laughs> elected? If schools were to radically change their curricula based on what children actually want to study and what benefited the children the most, would this be acceptable to school unions and authorities? If people who inflict divorce on their children, enormously traumatizing and harmful, were roundly criticized in society, would this be considered a good thing? What about 
women who have children out of wedlock? What about men who abandon their children? Well, we often do attack the men, but it is the women who initiate divorce far more often. Those merely accused of verbal bigotry in society are shunned and ostracized. Careers, reputations, and income are all destroyed. Yet those who directly harm their own children are very often praised. People are destroyed over imaginary words, but praised for destructive deeds. It is absolutely unacceptable to use slurs against other people. But yelling at children, hitting children, confining children and restraining children and indoctrinating them are all praised and rewarded. The world is hell because of childhood. Why we punish children? Do you think this case is too strong, too radical? Hey, no problem. Let's listen to the other side. The counter-argument runs thus. Well, of course, children have to be hit or restrained or controlled or yelled at because their brains are immature and they lack any sense of consequence. You don't let your child run into traffic or grab at a pot of boiling water on the stove, do you? Children are impulsive and unaware of dangers, and thus you have to use physical consequences such as spanking or timeouts in order to prevent far worse outcomes such as grievous injury or death. Hmm. This is an interesting argument because it seems believable on the surface, but a moment's thought destroys it entirely. It is part of our essential bigotry against children, our childism, to refuse to extract the moral essence behind the above argument. The moral argument goes thus. It is both appropriate and necessary to use violence against those with limited cognitive abilities. Do you see it yet? If a cognitively impaired adult makes a mistake or fails to think of consequences, is it acceptable for us to call him names, yell at him, beat him, restrain him, punish him for his badness? Can we hold him down on the stairs for one minute for every one of his birthdays? Can we lower his pants and spank him on his bare buttocks for his immorality? In a group home for cognitively impaired adults, do we allow the orderlies to insult or hit the adults who don't obey? If your elderly mother is cognitively impaired due to age, as most older people are, even to a small degree, are you allowed to lift her skirt and beat her buttocks if she forgets where she left her keys or forgets to turn off the stove? Of course not. Such suggestions would be morally reprehensible. So the idea that we beat children because children are cognitively limited is utterly and completely false. Again, we find the same pattern. Every group in society that shares the exact same characteristics as children is protected, except for the children who are exploited and attacked. We would never countenance beating people for the inevitable results of their cognitive limitations. Ah, 
except children, of course. We praise beating children for the inevitable results of their cognitive limitations. If a mother is asked why she hits her children, she might say, because they don't listen to me. This is a complete lie. Again, to extract the moral principle that it is good to hit people who do not listen to you, we can imagine the mother in a work situation where she is trying to explain to her boss how something can't be done, but her boss just won't listen. Does she then drag her boss across her knees, pull down his trousers, and beat his bare buttocks? Of course not. She would be arrested for assault. If she were to say to the arresting officers that she beat her boss because he just wouldn't listen, what would they say? You don't get to beat someone just because he doesn't listen to you. Imagine being a politician running on the platform of making it legal to beat anyone who you claimed did not listen to you. People would regard his campaign as morally insane. Yet we accept this as a reason why parents hit their children all the time. If we say that we arrest black people for stealing, but let every other race go free for the exact same behavior, then it is a lie to say that we are arresting black people for stealing. If we say that we insult, hit, and punish children for making mistakes and not listening, but we never insult any other people for the exact same behavior, then we are utterly lying about our moral motivations. Everywhere you look, you see the exact same pattern. It's morally evil for us. It's morally good for children. This is the essence of childism. People also say, well, I have to hit my children because children are incapable of reasoning. Can you imagine? Imagine this in society as a whole. Tell me, do you find society to be overly full of people deeply capable of and committed to reasoning? Again, the moral principle would be, it is morally good to beat people if they do not reason. Thus, if somebody makes an irrational statement, he can be beaten, right? If you provide clear evidence, but somebody denies said evidence, you can beat her. If somebody rejects a rational argument, you can beat him. Do you see how insane this is? Do you see how when you apply moral rules universally, the vicious prejudice of childism starts to become clear? Children reasoning? Of course children can reason. Even starting at about 15 months, they can perform deep moral reasoning. The grim reality is that most parents don't believe that their children can reason because they have never tried reasoning with them. For so many parents, reasoning means agreeing. I've asked you nicely is usually a prelude to coercive escalation. For most parents, disagreement or disappointment or inconvenience provokes violence. Violence against 
their children, either physical or emotional. This is beyond madness. If you're engaged in a verbal dispute with someone and you pull out your gun and he punches you, is that proof that he is not open to reason? No. You provoked the violence by pulling out your gun. Your opponent was actually defending himself with remarkable self-restraint. Parents do not struggle to reason with their children for months or years before hitting them. Oh no. They hit them right at the start, from the very beginning. They do not have lengthy proofs that their children just refuse to reason. They literally prevent their children from developing the capacity to reason by hitting them from babyhood or toddlerhood onwards. The hitting comes first. The kids can't reason excuse comes much, much later. Morally speaking, society generally holds fast to two central principles. Let's examine the first. One, a genuine incapacity should never be punished, but rather gently accommodated. If a child or adult cannot hear, we do not punish him for his deafness, but rather should learn sign language or provide a hearing aid and gently accommodate this limitation. If a man is in a wheelchair, we don't hit him for failing to walk, but rather build a walkway to give him access to amenities. If we genuinely believe that children cannot reason, we would view this as an incapacity and never dream of punishing children for a deficiency that is quite obviously beyond their control. If we're hosting a dinner party and one of our adult guests pees on our carpet, we would be justly horrified and appalled. If we are holding a baby and the baby pees on our carpet, it would be insane to have the same reaction because the baby lacks the capacity to control her bladder. We would not excuse the adult but punish the baby if we were sane, which is to say not in the grip of unconscious childism. Yet, if an adult is not rational or does not listen, we do not punish him. However, children who are physically limited in their capacity to reason are punished for this inevitable limitation all the time. If a guest decides to write on the walls of our house, are we allowed to yell at him, put him in a timeout, hit him or punish him in some other fashion? Of course not. We might be upset and angry, but we would never dream of attacking him in these ways. The adult, who has the capacity to know better, is forgiven. But the child, who cannot know better, is punished. None of this is about virtue. It is all about power. Why do we punish children? Because we are good and they are bad? Nope. Because they refuse to reason and so aggression and violence is our only remaining moral option? Nope. Why do we attack and punish children? 
for one reason and one reason only. Because we can. When slavery was legal, slave owners beat their slaves. Why did they do this? Because they could. If a man is greatly tempted by pickpocketing, but denies this temptation, we would praise him as overcoming a potential vice. However, if we find out later that this man has no arms, we would not praise his virtue since he simply lacks the physical capacity to pick people's pockets. If we hit children, but never adults, scream at children, but never adults, punish children, but never adults, call children abusive names, but never adults, it's just because we can. If we are told that it is morally good to yell at, hit, and punish our children, we will generally do so. The world is hell, and those in charge are devils. The second moral standard accepted by society is this. Two, as power disparities increase, moral standards also increase. A man can ask a woman out, even at work. However, a boss should not ask out his employee because he has too much power in the relationship. Because his employee might fear retaliation if she does not go out with her boss, she cannot be objective in her evaluation of his proposal. A policeman who abuses his power is generally considered worse than an abusive private citizen because the policeman has so much more power. If a private citizen lies about a policeman, that's bad, but not nearly as bad as a policeman who lies about a private citizen, particularly under oath. A corrupt judge is punished more severely than a corrupt salesman because judges have so much more power. A private citizen does not get praised for refusing to declare war. A politician who possesses that power may be praised for embracing peace. The more power that exists, the more virtue is required. A man in a coma is not praised for his morality since he has no capacity to act immorally. A broke woman is not despised for failing to give to charity. A billionaire would be. Power versus virtue. A love story. We all accept the following to be morally foundational. The greater the power disparity in a relationship, the more virtue is required from those who hold the most power. Okay. Are you ready? Here is the rank prejudice, the childism. There is no greater power disparity in the world than that between parents and children. We balk at a boss asking out his secretary because of the conflicts of interest and power disparities involved. More power requires more virtue. If a prisoner threatens to lock a guard in solitary confinement, this means little. If the guard threatens the prisoner, 
This means everything. Imagine reproducing the power dynamics of parenthood in a marriage. Shall we? Okay. Bob and Sally are married. Sally was assigned to Bob and had no choice in the matter. She was forced to get married and it is illegal for her to leave him until she has been married for at least 18 years. Sally is only allowed to leave the house when Bob leaves or with someone else who has authority over her. She can never leave the house on her own, at least for the first eight or ten years of the marriage. The husband, Bob, has total control over his wife, Sally. Bob can hit her, restrain her, refuse to feed her, cut off her social contacts, confine her to her room, scream at her, call her names, and she is never allowed to leave and has no right of self-defense. If Bob hits Sally and Sally tries to resist, Bob can then call the police, who will lecture Sally about the beating, saying that she has to strive to understand Bob more and be more agreeable to his wishes. If Sally ever attempts to talk about Bob's abusive behavior, everyone will tell her that she has to forgive Bob, that Bob is doing his best, that he may not be perfect, but that nobody is, and that she absolutely must stay with Bob for the rest of her life and take care of him as he ages and gets sick and give him whatever money he needs and surrender her will to his preferences and never expect Bob to apologize or ask for forgiveness or change his abusive ways. In fact, for Sally, even talking to Bob about his abusive behavior is a bad idea. It will just upset Bob, who again is doing the best he can with the knowledge he has. Sally is constantly lectured to remember that Bob had a difficult life when he was younger and that her job is to love and understand him and never, ever leave. So, what happens if, after 20 years of being abused and begging for change and offering to go to couples counseling, Sally finally decides to leave Bob. Well, terrible things happen then. Sally will have to strive to keep the guilty secret of her freedom for the rest of her life. Because the few people she does confide in roundly condemn her for failing to be loving and supportive to her loving husband, Bob. Everyone gets acutely uncomfortable and often hostile whenever Sally mentions that she escaped an abusive relationship, one that she never chose in the first place because it was an arranged marriage. The coldness and hostility Sally receives when she confesses how she escaped from an abusive relationship is incomprehensible to her as she slowly begins to approach one of the lowest and hottest circles of hell in our corrupt society. Sally will inevitably notice that women who voluntarily dated, became girlfriends, got engaged, got married, and then decided to have multiple children with a man, after having years to evaluate him, 
are praised as noble and courageous for leaving a marriage they claim is merely unsatisfying. Women who evaluate men for years, who choose to get married and have children, and who then break up their families because they are merely bored and understimulated, these women are endlessly praised for their courage and independence. However, Sally, who was involuntarily incarcerated in an abusive relationship, who begged for improvement, who bent over backwards trying to accommodate Bob, and who finally fled for the sake of her own sanity, she is condemned and ostracized for her cold-hearted immorality and lack of sympathy for Bob. <sighs> the world only seems sane if you refuse to think. Leaving a boring relationship that you voluntarily chose to the massive detriment of your children is good and brave and noble and courageous. Fleeing a relentlessly abusive relationship you never chose is cold-hearted and immoral and a betrayal of your husband who genuinely loves you and always wants what is best for you. Please remember that I am not objecting to the inevitable. Children are dependent on their parents, and have no practical capacity to leave the relationship. This is not a moral or legal issue, but rather an evolutionary and biological fact. The fact that children are involuntarily trapped with their parents is not a problem to be solved, since there is no solution, but a power disparity to be recognized. It is a deeply strange fact in society that we expect and require the greatest morals from the most powerful people, <gasps> except for parents who have the most power in the universe and are allowed to do pretty much whatever they want. This is a bizarre kind of moral flip or reversal. We have a principle that as power increases, moral standards must also increase, Ah, except at the very top, at the pinnacle and summit of power where the wildest immoralities are not just accepted, but praised and rewarded. This would be as bizarre as a feminist claiming that inappropriate comments, glances and touches are massively evil. But patriarchal leaders are only moral if they abuse and rape at will. It is also a strange phenomenon of society that there are many people who claim to oppose violence and abuse and corruption and devilry of every kind but who also refuse to touch the unjust use of parental power against helpless and dependent children. Billions of people are obsessed and panicked about possible tiny changes in temperatures a hundred years from now, while resolutely stepping over the countless broken bodies of broken children scattered in their midst. For thousands of years, moralists have condemned and opposed war, while resolutely avoiding society's endless war against its own children. Millions of people who support the non-aggression principle have steadfastly avoided condemning the greatest violation of this principle in the world, physical and verbal violence against children.
reversing principles. We cannot claim to have any morals whatsoever if we can reverse our principles at will. We cannot claim that it is wrong for a boss to ask out his secretary because he holds so much power over her, but that it is right for a parent to hit her child where the power disparity is infinitely greater. The secretary can complain, file a grievance, quit her job, transfer, work to get her boss fired, or refuse his advances and take her chances. What choices do abused children have? They cannot leave. They cannot fight back. They very rarely can get any support at all. If they complain, they are rejected and dismissed. If they fight back, punishments escalate, sometimes to the point of mortal danger. Children have no economic independence, no legal standing, no choice, no freedom, no self-defense, no capacity to avoid their tormentors. We often say to children bullied at school, just avoid the bully. If the parent is the bully, there is no avoidance. Let us return to Bob and Sally. If Bob genuinely wants his wife to love him, but she is arranged to marry him against her will and is never allowed to divorce him, what can he do? It is not impossible for Sally to end up loving Bob, but... Bob does have to overcome the involuntary nature of their union. Involuntary relationships come with an inevitable deficit, the obvious fact that they are not chosen. If we assume that a joyful marriage is a plus 10, then a forced marriage must start at a minus 10. People who choose to get married are already happy and enthusiastic about the relationship, so they're probably starting at a plus six, seven, or eight. To get to a plus ten is only two to four extra points of happiness. People who are forced into a marriage are starting out at a minus ten. To get to a plus ten means twenty extra points of happiness. How much work does Bob have to do to get Sally to truly love him, given that she never chose to marry him in the first place. Surely this would be one of the greatest efforts imaginable to turn a virtual prisoner into a truly happy partner. Surely Bob would say to himself, well, my wife is not here by choice, and she cannot leave. Therefore, I have to be such a great husband that she would still choose me, even if she were given all the choice in the world. In other words, I have to act as if she were not forced to marry me, and could leave at any time. I have to have the very highest standards of benevolence, love, good humor, and virtue in order to overcome the deficit that she never chose me and is forced to live and stay with me. The involuntary nature of the relationship would require the very highest possible standards from Bob's behavior in order to transform it from unchosen to chosen. This analogy has one limitation, which is that adults can leave abusive parents after 18 years. But this is largely 
impractical because it will cost them almost all their relationships to stand up to their abusers. This would be like a wife being allowed to leave her husband after 18 years, but at the cost of all of her social and familial relationships. Parents choose to have children. Children do not choose to be born or choose their parents. In a very real sense, children are trapped with their parents. Again, this is not a moral or legal issue, but a stark biological reality. It is an arranged marriage, arranged by parental choice. If parents want their children to love them, they must think as Bob should. Bob says, even though Sally never chose her relationship with me, I must act in such a way that If Sally were able to choose any husband in the world, or not to be married at all, she would still choose me. In the same way, parents must say, even though my children never chose their relationship with me, I must act in such a way that if my children were able to choose any parent in the world, they would still choose me. The greater the power disparity, the higher the requirement for virtue. We all accept and praise this as a moral absolute. Except... Except with parents. If Bob were to say to Sally, You owe me obedience, and I will physically and or emotionally punish you if you disagree, disobey, or inconvenience me, then what would the chances be? that Sally would end up loving Bob. To ask the question is to answer it. Imaginary obligations. One way to abuse someone is to create imaginary obligations and then punish her for failing to pay what she owes. Imagine a man who thinks that taking a woman out for dinner entitles him to have sex with her. If she refuses sex, he will get angry and yell at her. This would be unjust and abusive. However, when parents create an imaginary obligation called obedience or respect or convenience, there are hundreds of such obligations, of course, they then feel fully justified in punishing their children for failing to pay what they damn well owe their parents. If you borrow my lawnmower and refuse to give it back, I'm allowed to take it back without consulting you, by force if need be. If you rent a car and refuse to return it, the rental company can take it back without consulting you, by force if need be. If you take out a loan to buy a house but refuse to pay the loan, the bank can take your home from you, by force if need be. The person who borrows and refuses to return or repay is in the wrong. And aggression, even violence, is justified to right this wrong. Entitlement is the idea that you are owed something that you do not have to earn. A man who believes that women owe him sex is a dangerous person. An employee who believes his boss owes him a paycheck, even if he never shows up to work, is deranged and also dangerous. 
People who believe that the government owes them a pension or welfare or health care are equally dangerous. Billions of parents across the world genuinely believe that their children owe them something. And if those children refuse to pay, those parents are entirely justified in using aggression and violence to punish the children. Here is a shocking fact. Your children do not owe you obedience. They do not owe you respect. They do not owe you love or support or resources or attention or time or phone calls or money. It's far easier to create imaginary obligations than to earn genuine respect. It is far easier to threaten people until they claim to love you than to earn their true love through virtue and affection. In other news, it is far easier to steal than to create. It is far easier to copy an mp3 than to learn instruments than write and record a song. It is far easier to kill than birth and raise life. It is far easier to bully and threaten children into obeying you rather than inspiring emulation through virtuous action. If a man did not borrow from you, but you take something of his, you are the thief, not him. If you imagine that your children owe you obedience and then you threaten, punish, and bully them into paying you, you are immoral, not them. If you force the woman who never chose to marry you to obey you and claim that she loves you, you are a vile bully and nothing more. Shooting the messenger. Now is the time for conciliation. This book is doubtless deeply shocking and alarming to you, and I massively praise and respect you for making it this far. The worst is still ahead, to be sure, but there will be no shock like these first pages. Isn't this all so blindingly obvious? And if so obvious, why has it been hidden from you? Why have you suffered so much from this rank hypocrisy? Well, you were lied to. And everyone around you is doing the same terrible things. This all comes as a shock to you. And I sympathize. I empathize. I really do. And your first impulse will be to hurl this book aside and condemn me. When everyone has lied to you, your first impulse is to attack the first person who tells you the truth. It is, frankly, horrifying to see the depths of moral falsehoods, hypocrisies, and downright evil in the society around us. When we walk through the mall and see all the countless people there with children and know for certain that the vast majority of them are bullying or hitting their children at home, this is deeply disturbing and alienating. It is a red pill moment which we can never return from. You will be mad at me because my arguments are creating acute discomfort within you. 
and we are all very used to punishing anyone who causes us discomfort. Frankly, this is just another effect of bad parenting. In the common perception, children owe their parents obedience and love, and when the parents fail to pay what they owe, this causes great upset in the parents, who then feel fully justified in punishing the children for causing them pain. Attacking children is thus legitimately reframed, at least in the minds of the parents, as a form of self-defense against injurious disobedience. In this way, the parents are not really attacking the children, but defending themselves against their children for the pain caused by the children's non-compliance. Almost all parental abuse falls under the imaginary category called, Well, kid, you started it! Conclusions If you grow up believing that the world is flat, because it sure looks that way, and everyone around you tells you that the world is flat, and your teachers instruct you that the world is flat, and punish and fail you for believing anything else, and all the scientists tell you that the world is flat, and all the people who question whether the world is flat are called crazy and attacked and ostracized, are you really to blame for believing that the world is flat? I think it's important to have some sympathy and gentleness for the errors you have absorbed, or which have been inflicted on you more accurately. Analogies involving science and physics are of limited use in moral questions, however, since they cannot be resolved with a moment's thought. Discovering that the world is a sphere and not a tabletop cannot be achieved with ten seconds of critical thinking. However, we all know that violence is wrong. We all know that excluding entire swaths of humanity from the moral law, or rather reversing the moral law for them, is wrong. The American Declaration of Independence is criticized for saying that all men are creating equal, but then allowing for slavery. This is a rank contradiction, obvious even to people at the time. It barely takes a moment's thought to notice it. It does not take an advanced degree in physics to notice that your children did not choose you as their parent. This is obvious to everyone who takes a moment to think about it. It does not take a significant number of physical experiments to notice that we hold those in power to higher moral standards. You do not need to be excellent at vector calculus to notice that those with disabilities are treated more gently in society. You do not need the moral acuity of Aristotle to note that we do not generally encourage the use of violence against the most vulnerable members of society. These are all simple principles accepted by everyone in society. Everyone reading this has known for many years about the national debt, about failing schools, and the hitting of children. Everyone reading this was mindlessly bored in school and desperately wished for someone, anyone, to listen to our preferences. We know all of this. We have experienced all of this. And perhaps that is the difficulty. It's one thing to believe that the world is flat when it looks that way and everyone tells you so. It's quite another thing 
to believe that the world is flat after we've been taken out into orbit, lived there for years, and have spent countless hours gazing out the window at the obvious sphere of the planet. We all experienced this as children. This contempt, this hostility, this aggression, this violence, this abuse. We were either raised in bad families and experienced this directly, or were raised in great families and saw the difference all around us. We are either in danger because we were lied to, or we are in danger because everyone else was lied to. There is no escape but the truth. There is no way forward but through. We are going to talk about the facts. We are going to reason through the ethics. We are going to reveal and break up the bottomless prejudice of childism. We are going to finally live up to what we proclaim that we love and treasure our children. We will do what is the hardest. We will accept nothing less than honesty, truth, and virtue. We will grind through our pain to get to our moral destination. We will do all this because the alternative is not in fact hell, but death. <laughs>